everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Mike Kresnick, and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune and Pastor Dusty White of Corndale Church and Pastor Chris Hummelman of First City Church. Every Wednesday, we sit down and talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. And today we're talking about the book of Ruth. We at Corndale are preaching through the book of Ruth in February, and so I just made a unilateral executive decision. Well, let's just talk about Ruth on the podcast. Recently, we had a little preaching meeting, and I uh, remembered that our friend Kyle McClellan, pastor of Grace Church in Fremont, Nebraska. Fremont, USA. Uh, Fremont, USA. Uh, had done a doctoral dissertation on the book of Ruth. So I was like, hey, Kyle, would you come and help us think about how to preach Ruth? And it was a really rich whiteboard session and a good chance just to think about this book of the Bible. And uh, D- Dusty's Dusty's fact checking live within within the podcast. He's he's saying I that might have he been, recommended. Yes, Kyle. it might have been that Dusty was like, "Hey, didn't Kyle do some work on this book?" And yeah. I was like, "Oh yeah." So hey, so thanks, Dusty. Dusty always have a mic right now, so <laughs> it's cool. Um, so we thought let's uh, let's get Kyle in for a podcast and help us um, think about and sort of explore this book of the Bible. We, here's what we want to try to do, listeners. We want to try to help you understand some of the major themes of the book of Ruth without giving away any of the sermons for the next four weeks. So this is that podcast where we try to talk about a book in a way that doesn't steal the punchline of the sermons you may hear if you happen to attend a particular local church in the next four weeks. So Kyle, thanks for joining us. Thank you. A longtime listener, first time caller. (laughs) Hey, why did you decide, what was it about the book of Ruth that made you decide, hey, this is what I want to study? Um... My father doctor in the sort of German tradition is an Old Testament scholar and theologian. And I knew I wanted to do something with an Old Testament book. I also knew because it was a a DMN project and dissertation, I didn't want to do a long book because I'm fundamentally lazy. And so Ruth fit all that criteria really well. Also within um, uh, something that that, uh, Chris and I have been a part of, the, the Charles Simeon Trust, uh, they put a lot of emphasis on something called the melodic line. And Ruth seemed like a really good little book to kind of sink your teeth into and figure out the melodic line of the of the book of Ruth and then build from that kind of central understanding of what the writer is trying to communicate. What um, Before we get into the book, you have been helpful to me uh, and to many of us in helping us think about how to preach Jesus from the Old Testament. And you have a couple of things, a couple of hobby horses that you like to ride there. I do, and yeah. I think it'd be worth saying for the yeah. sake of this podcast. Thank you for uh, for uh, allowing me, enabling me to uh, get on my soapbox here. I, I think there's a couple of things that we need to be mindful of, and there think of them as kind of extremes. On the one hand, if you grew up in the tradition, Bob, that you and I grew up in, the old we didn't really know what to do with the Old Testament. You know, we could talk about how you should be like David or, you know, don't be like Solomon or whatever. And there was a kind of strange sort of legalism going on because in that framework, you didn't really know what to do with the first two thirds of the Bible. Well, like most things, we've not just corrected, we've overcorrected. And now all we want to do is we want to talk about how quickly and demonstrate how quickly I can get to Jesus from any particular Old Testament text. And we seem to forget our, our heritage, and we seem to forget our confessions. So, for example, the Westminster Confession says that Scripture has two aims. It tells us what we are to believe about God, and then it tells us what duty God requires of his people. 
And on the one hand, in the tradition you and I grew up in, we were busy talking about what duty we thought it required. But now we just think it's just there to tell me about Jesus. And we, we kind of forget that, no, there are exemplary characters, for example, in the Old Testament that we might want to think about who do function in ways that are more expansive than just they become a type of Jesus or they become a foreshadowing of Jesus. So the, the goal is always to try to keep that tension in mind. Yes, uh, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. They all find their yes and amen in him. Yet at the same time, we, we also seem to forget that our faith is a Trinitarian faith. There's more going on than just the second person of the Trinity. And that if the Bible tells me something about God the Father, or say, for example, in Ezekiel 36 and 37, if the Bible tells us something significant about God, God the Spirit, it doesn't mean that I'm reading the text unfaithfully, but rather it might mean that our, our faith is Trinitarian and that our salvation is Trinitarian in its nature. Yeah, and you've done a really good job helping us think about um, that, that idea of the melodic line, I guess, thinking about how, the, how we are faithful to the original writer and original audience of Ruth and still see that there is a, a bigger story that this story is caught up in. So Kyle, if any of the preachers of Coramdale get up on stage and go, Jesus is the greater and truer, <laughs> the truer Ruth. Greater Ruth. Would you like run, run from Fremont's bust <laughs> in the door and just like drag them off the stage? I, I would, I would, in my mind, I would give them a good Presbyterian talking to. There you go. Uh, I, I mean, there are places for it. I mean, and there are instances in the book in which that's true. But I think one of the challenges is instead of just reading Jesus back into these people, let's understand that as Paul confesses, Jesus is the Christ in fulfillment of the scriptures. So I get a better sense of who Jesus is as the second Adam, who's the redeemer, when I pay attention to what's actually going on with Boaz. So instead of just slapping out their kinsman redeemer, well, let's, let's give a little bit of attention to what's going on with Boaz, because when I get a better picture of what's happening with Boaz, what Jesus does on our behalf suddenly has a greater depth and a greater richness and it, it pops better than if I just go, oh, it's the kinsman redeemer. And all the people who grew up in church are like, oh yeah, well, we've heard about that. Well, how about if we let the text tell us what it wants to tell us and then make those canonical connections instead of, I mean, I, I hate people who read the end of the book first and then, you know, like, just don't, don't, just don't do that. Please <laughs> stop it. You had this great three word phrase by which you summarized, uh, the book of Ruth, and it was the epic normal. Talk yeah. about that a little bit. So Ruth is this book that's filled with really, really normal things. You have, at least in, in ancient Israel, you have a famine, you have deaths, you have people moving about, you have marriages, you have childbirth, you have harvest. So all these things are really pretty normal. But it's through these normal things that we see how God is continuing to move, as it were, to move the story forward. So from Genesis 3 on, we've been looking for the seed, the seed of Eve who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And then we get to Genesis 12, and God has particular promises, covenant promises that he's made to Abraham, that all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through him. So Ruth is one of these stories that helps us move this kind of epic tale of redemption forward. And it shows us how, for example, uh, we go from the book of Judges where there is no king to then in 1 Samuel, we end up with this guy named David, 
who then Matthew 1 tells us we move from David to Jesus. So it's in these really, for lack of a better term, sort of mundane things that God is moving his plan of redemption forward. He's going to keep the promise he made in Genesis 3. He's going to keep the promise he made in Genesis 12. He's going to keep the promise he makes to David in 2 Samuel 7. And all of these things are happening through a famine, uh, a family coming back, uh, a young woman dutifully sticking by her mother-in-law who really probably doesn't want her there and then going to work in a really non-OSHA approved uh, situation <laughs> in which Me Too has not yet occurred. So, and, and, an, and, and a farmer, like a middle-aged, just salt-of-the-earth guy actually living out what God's word requires of him. It's through all those kind of normal things that God is moving this wonderful story of redemption forward. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Talk a little bit about the placement of Ruth in the canon. You had some interesting observations on the Hebrew and the English canon and, and some of how Ruth seems to function in the, in the minds of the people who compiled scripture. Yeah. So Ruth is one of the books that if you have a, if, if you're a first semester seminary student and you're taking intro to Hebrew or uh, we had a friend, Bob Seth rings who went to a seminary that kind of didn't really believe in Hebrew. And so they took Hebrew appreciation, whatever the heck that is. It's like, I can appreciate that it's really hard and, and the letters don't make sense. Uh, if you have a Hebrew Old Testament, then you know that Ruth doesn't come after Judges and before First and Second Samuel. In the Hebrew order of the books, Ruth comes right after the book of Proverbs. Well, Proverbs ends in Proverbs 31 with the tale of the virtuous woman or the, the, the recounting of the virtuous woman. And that language, in fact, the exact same language that's used in, in, um, in the book of Proverbs, Boaz then uses when he talks about Ruth and says that she's, he confesses that he knows she's a worthy woman. And so the great surprise in the Hebrew order of the books is that if you're looking for the example of the virtuous woman of Proverbs 31, uh, it's not Sarah, it's not Rachel, it's, it's not any of the sort of matriarchs, but the, the living example, the, the, the exemplar of the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31 is a Moabite, which is just stunning. And so you read Ruth knowing that the characters who are there, particularly Ruth and Boaz, they really are exemplary characters. And it's okay to say, as Paul uh, says, you know, I want you to imitate me as I imitate Christ. It's okay to say, hey, uh, young women, you can do worse than want to be like Ruth. And young men, you can do worse than want to be like Boaz. I have a 21-year-old daughter. If she could bring a guy like Boaz home, Amy and I would be ecstatic. We, we would, we'd sign up for that in a heartbeat. You know, just move out of your parents' basement and, and we'll be doing well in life. Yep. In the English Bible, though, it serves as a hinge. So the question becomes, how do we move historically from Judges, which is really uh, just this dark and horrible story that's this downward spiral of God's people just completely out of control? Well, how do we get from that to David? How is that going to happen? And how it happens, as we've already talked about, is this really kind of normal tale about people dealing with hardship, people 
having to do the right thing, people actually having to trust God at his word and be obedient to what he calls his people to do. And in that way, it serves both sort of an exemplary purpose, but then it also serves a redemptive purpose. We see how the story is moved forward, but we also understand that these are people who are exemplary characters. Kyle, you just mentioned the Moabite thing. If I'm listening in and, and I know that that is significant, but I don't necessarily know how significant that is. Right. So can you just explain if I'm listening in, like the difference between, I'm not just necessarily a foreigner, but the Moabite pieces. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, after lot in, in, in Genesis, after lot is thrown out of Sodom and his wife disobeys and looks back and turns into a pillar of salt, lot retreats back up into the Hills with his two daughters. And they're both like, Hey, we're, I'm paraphrasing now. Uh, we're in trouble. People know what happened. No way we're going to find a husband. And so on two successive nights, Lot's daughters get him drunk. And then in this incestuous act, there are these two sons who are born. One becomes, uh, names Moab, the other is Ammon, from which we get the Moabites and the Ammonites. It gets even better, and I'm being facetious there, it gets even better when Israel is coming into the promised land uh, and, and Balaam is hired to curse God's people. And he ends up not cursing them. He ends up blessing them, which upsets Balak. But it's the Moabite women who end up leading the Israelite men astray. And so you have this people who historically, they're the result of this one night of drunken incest. And then in more recent memory for Israel, Moabite women are easy to just sort of put it out there. Uh, they're, They're known as being these sort of sly... Uh, idolatrous, very uh, seductive and and promiscuous women. And so they're not, uh, a, a good Jewish boy would not show up with a Moabite at the door and expect mom and dad to be really happy about his choice. Kyle, so when you sat down with us before you were talking to preachers and trying to help us think about teaching this book, uh, we're talking now to readers of the Bible and the average listener to this podcast is, uh, some are pastors and preachers, but a lot of them are just folks who are uh, trying to walk faithfully with Jesus. What does a reader need to understand about Ruth in order to appreciate the sort of connectedness of the story as, as we come to this book, which is short four chapters, what are the major things we need to know as those coming to read and pay attention to the story? Well, I think one of the themes that gets repeated And that's one of the ways the author lets us know what he wants to emphasize is uh, the biblical writers don't have 14 point font. They can't bold it. They can't underline it. So they use repetition as a means to let us know what's important and, and to show emphasis. And one of the phrases that gets repeated a lot in the book of Ruth is this idea of going from, from fullness to emptiness or from emptiness to fullness. And as you think about the book, the book really uh, is is sort of, it's a chiasm in its structure. So it, it has, it starts off with things that are empty. In fact, in the first of five verses, we learn about all of the emptiness in the book. We're introduced to all these major things that are, are vacant or empty. Uh, we're told in the days when the judges ruled, so we know there's no king. And then we're told there's a famine in the land. So there's, we have, we have an empty throne and now we have empty bellies. And then we're told about this guy named Elimelech who takes his wife, Naomi, and their two sons whose names literally mean uh, deathly and sickly. (laughs) And uh, they go to Moab, Moab and not surprisingly, they die, but they've taken Moabite wives. And so you have 
an empty throne, you have empty bellies, uh, you have no children that come out of any of these, uh, these marriages, and we now have no husband. So we have an empty throne, we have an empty belly, we have an empty marriage bed, and we have empty wombs. The rest of the book then shows us how God fills those things that were previously empty. So if you read the story with, those, with that, that motif of empty to full in mind, you'll, you'll get a good sense of how God is providentially orchestrating these things, even in ways that the characters themselves aren't aware of. I mean, oftentimes God uses things like, hey, uh, we don't have any food in the house. Oh, okay, I'll go to work. And through this simple act of Ruth getting up and going to glean in the corners of the field, which God provides for, uh, for widows and foreigners in his word, she just happens to meet, she just happens to be in Boaz's field, just happens to meet Boaz. And oh yeah, by the way, it just happens that Boaz is a relative of Naomi's. So God is working in and through all these things, but they're not they're not great and grandiose things. They're very normal things, uh, things that he's provided for in his word, things that we would just normally expect uh, people, would, people would go and do. Obviously, you, you don't want us to get too quickly to the end of the book because that, that chapter four right. makes some connections for us that are important in sort of redemptive history. Um, but as we move through the book and get to chapter four, we see there's a connection here to the, to the family of David, right. uh, which, which does seem to be an important connection, especially in ju- moving us from judges to first Samuel and, and getting us ultimately to the, to the gospel of Matthew. Um, what is it about that that is significant and how are we to take, how are we to understand the full picture that Ruth is telling there in light of the connection to the, the messianic line? Well, I think the surprise there, again, is that, uh, and when you read Matthew and you look at the genealogy and you see the women that are listed, uh, none of them would necessarily be great candidates to be the president of the women's auxiliary within the church. Uh, They all have either real or perceived hints of impropriety and scandal about them. Uh, Ruth is a Moabitess. Uh, Rahab really actually was a prostitute. Tamar poses as a prostitute. So you have these women who are, um, there, there was a book, oh, probably 20, 30 years ago. You, some of you guys are probably too young to remember this, but uh, there's an author who wrote this book called Bad Girls of the Bible. And all of these women had chapters in Bad Girls in the Bible. And that's, that's um, for good reason. So I, I think as we think about making those connections, uh, we, we probably do well to let Matthew kind of guide us in that. I think sometimes we, we get a little cranky to make our own connections. And instead of sort of humbly letting the Bible make those connections for us, I also think sometimes we don't know enough Bible to know that there are connections. <laughs> and so we think we got to reinvent the wheel. Kyle, earlier you kind of made a joke about kinsman redeemer and the way people can kind of treat that or rush through that. Talk to us about what what is a good way to approach that theme from the book of Ruth? What is a a more biblically faithful and maybe uh, a rich that, that kind of appreciates the depth and the the layers of of that theme? Well, I think there's there's two pieces to kinsman redeemer that are significant. One is that it 
actually has to be a kinsman. So now we're talking about the incarnation. And now I think we're necessarily talking about that really amazing scene in Genesis 15 when God uh, reiterates the covenant that he has with Abraham and he has the flaming pot go through the, the carcasses of the dead animals, but he doesn't have Abraham go through it. And in essence, what God is saying is, look, if you break the covenant, death is what's going to happen, but it won't be death to you. It'll be death to me. Well, that's great, God, but you're a spirit. And how do you kill a flaming pot? <laughs> so the incarnation is the answer to, as, as Gardner Taylor used to say, in the incarnation, God becomes death eligible. So when the word becomes flesh and dwells with us, we understand that Jesus came explicitly to die. So that's the, kin, the kinsman piece is filled out for us in that Jesus is fully human, and the church has wrestled with that. We've struggled with it. Uh, the, the early Christian councils dealt with, well, what do we mean when we say that Jesus is fully human, that he's, that he's fully God? So the kinsman piece is that uh, Jesus is fully human. He's, he's like us. The Redeemer piece, at least in Ruth, as we think about Boaz, what's interesting is Boaz is not, he's not the next of kin. He's not the first in line to be the Redeemer. But uh, the, the Mr. So-and-so, he's called friend in the ESV. Literally, it's Polonial Moni. The Polonial Moni is offered the chance as a farmer to get more farm ground. And every farmer wants more farm ground. But then Boaz springs on him, oh yeah, by the way, the minute you take the ground, you also get Ruth to be your wife. So now what looked like was a really good deal becomes a really expensive, really costly deal. Because the ground that he takes is going to have to go to the offspring that he has with Ruth. It's not really his ground. The child that he's expected to have with Ruth won't really be his child. It, technically, it's Malon's child. It's the dead husband's child. we got to perpetuate the line. And so you have to divide your operation, and you have all these mouths to feed until the day comes that this kid who's not really yours, but you've raised as yours, and you've had to clothe and feed and educate, takes this thing that you had to buy outright. <laughs> so it, becomes, it just becomes way too costly. And... He's not a total schlub. He's just not willing to pay a price that's that high. Boaz, on the other hand, because he loves Ruth, he's willing to pay the price. So if you think about Christ and our redemption in that way, and you think about um, the high cost of redeeming wayward ridiculous, sinful people. Now, all of a sudden, if you, if you can't preach Jesus from that, quit preaching. <laughs> like, just stop. Go sell cars or insurance or go become a professional gamer or something useful, right? Don't stop preaching. That's a really worshipful uh, reflection, Kyle. So thanks for that. I remember you saying, the other day when you were talking to us as preachers, uh, Jesus has a little bit of a Boaz complex. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that really is, I mean, I think one of the, one of the things that we forget about Jesus is we think, because we read those texts in the gospels in which he knows what's in the heart of man. And you're like, Whoa, 
I don't even know what's in my own heart, let alone, you know, if I, if I knew what was in Mike's heart, I'd probably punch him in the face and then leave. So this idea that Jesus is, is fully God, he's fully God in this moment means I think sometimes that we forget this was the, these were the stories he grew up with. These were the stories that taught him about his heavenly father. And so when you think about being a kinsman redeemer, when you think about the high price of redemption, well, Ruth is one of those stories that Jesus would have learned in Sunday school, complete with the flannel graph and Boaz looking like, you know, like the drummer from the Bee Gees or from, from the Doobie Brothers, right? Uh, kind of like Dusty looks, uh, you know, with the, the kind of manly beard. And the hey, nobody knows what either of those bands are. But. So uh, those of you who are 50 or older, you're welcome. Uh, everybody else, you can just Google it and you'll, you'll, figure, it, you'll figure it out. But yeah, this, these are the, you know, one of the things I think we forget, and I think preaching gives us a great opportunity uh, and I was really helped by a TGC talk that Bob gave. Uh, one of the things that we do as uh, what it means to be human is um, we are interpreters of the world that is around us. Now, we don't always interpret it rightly. And one of the primary means by which we interpret our world is through story. Well, this is a beautiful, powerful story. So why do we think that Jesus is not going to use this particular story as an interpreter? I mean, we already know from Matthew 4, Jesus' go-to when he's tempted is going to be the Bible. So when we're thinking about these questions like, what's it mean to be a kinsman redeemer? I really do think that Jesus, uh, for lack of a better term, his imagination was shaped probably more powerfully by stories like this than... Um, maybe we would, we would dare to let ourselves think. I mean, he was fully human. And these are the stories that God's spirit gave him to help him uh, explain and understand and interpret the world that is around him. When you think of how to summarize the, the message of Ruth for today, right? right? So for the average person reading this book and saying, okay, what's God saying to me? What is the spirit saying to me through this story and through this book? How would you summarize, Kyle, how Ruth can help me walk out from a sermon or from a sitting down with the scriptures? And, and what is God trying to teach me or um, build into my soul as I encounter this story? I think we need to trust that the way God fulfills his providential plans in our lives, number one, is it's going to look pretty normal. It's not going to be some great grand uh, thing, but it will be through these kind of normal things that we've been looking at. But I also think we need to understand, as, as Naomi learned, that there is this cruciform shape to the whole book. So in other words, you know, Luther talked about the theology of glory versus the theology of the cross. And if we're Christians, the kind of suffering and the kind of loss that Naomi and Ruth both have to deal with, and the fact that you have a mother-in-law who doesn't do well with the loss. Those things shouldn't surprise us. And it's not God somehow not working out his purposes, but oftentimes God works out his purposes through this kind of suffering and through this kind of hardship and through 
the need for his people to be patient and to endure and to keep doing the little things, trusting then that he's going to use it uh, to his end. He's going to use it providentially to whatever, uh, whatever end is going to glorify himself. That's beautiful. I do have one question, Kyle, if I'm, you know, a mom and dad at home, I got a couple of kids, church is going through Ruth. So we might as well read Ruth. It's only four chapters, right? Right. It's either Philemon or Ruth. So, um, what are some key things maybe as a parent that would be really good for me to understand as I'm trying to explain this to my kids and just get into the narrative and the story and help them appreciate the book? I think first appreciate and communicate to your kids. This is a really, really good story and it's really well told. Uh, one of the things I think that we sometimes don't draw our kids' attention to, and sometimes we just read them really good books and we don't tell them it's a really good book. We just expect that over time it's going to sink in. But Ruth is a beautifully told, uh, very tightly, for lack of a better term, reasoned book. The author uses things like irony and uses it to great effect. So, Draw your kids' attention, I think, to the fact that, yes, the Bible is God's word. Yes, the, in the Bible, God reveals himself to us, and he tells us how he wants us to live our lives. But he doesn't give, just give us a checklist. He gives us this beautiful story. And I think we need to do a better job, probably, of paying attention to really good stories in our lives. And I don't just mean by binge-watching the first two seasons of The Mandalorian which is a great story. Uh, um, debatable. Oh. <laughs> Shots fired <laughs> again. Stay focused here, boys. <laughs> so I think that I just think we need to do a better job of that. Um, I mean, it's great if you, if you read your kid kind of the classics or if you read C.S. Lewis or if you read them Tolkien or whatever to kind of expose them to those kinds of things. But I do think there's a point in which it's okay to say as a parent, hey, you just need to know this is a really, really good story. And we want to pay attention to the characters and we want to pay attention to the setting. and We want to pay attention to uh, what, God is, what God is doing because only twice is any kind of direct activity attributed to God. It's in the beginning of the book and then it's at the end of the book. Well, the author's trying to tell us something there. So make sure your kid help your kids see and, and alert them to what's going on and what it is that they're actually reading. I'm asking that mostly selfishly because we started reading the book of Ruth just right at dinner and we're just going to slowly go through it and just repeat ourselves through it because it's only four chapters. So we're just going to keep getting into the story. You do Philemon after that? Uh, yeah. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I think I'd go to Jude, but that's okay. <laughs> there you go. Yes. Kyle, thanks for uh, spending time with us and helping us get our minds and hearts in this book. Um, and thanks for uh, your work in this text. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. The goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in and we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We always love to hear from you, the listeners. So if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topic ideas, send us an email, podcast at cdomaha.com. And we'll see you again next Wednesday for another Wednesday conversation.